Our next speaker, Patrick Newman, he's a fellow at the Mises Institute. He's not old enough yet to be a senior fellow, but you'll get there. Uh, but that, that hasn't stopped him from being quite accomplished. Uh, you know, he edited Rothbard's posthumous work, The Progressive Era. He, uh, he solved the Antikythera device. He actually took Rothbard's handwriting for the fifth uh, volume of Conceived in Liberty and somehow transcribed that in, and got it published posthumously as well. Uh, he is an uh, assistant professor of economics at Florida Southern College, and he's also the author of the brand new book, Cronyism. So, Patrick Newman. Oh, and, and the talk, I, I apologize, the, the, the talk is titled Austrian Economics versus the Establishment. Now, now. <laughs> Up, so thank you so much for uh, coming to my talk. I uh, know it's the end of the day, so I'm sure some of you are tired and you're also hungry. So I promise to keep this short and sweet, which is what the Federal Reserve promised us inflation would be this year. So anyway, hopefully I'll be able to keep my promise. Uh, so anyway, as we all know, we're at the Mises Caucus. So how many fans of Ludwig von Mises are here? Yeah. All right. How many fans of Murray Rothbard are here? Yeah. How many fans of John Maynard Keynes are here? All right. I know I'm in the right place. I, I, I know I, I made a good decision by agreeing to talk here. So, uh, again, I'm, I'm Patrick Newman. I'm a professor of economics at Florida Southern College. I'm also a fellow of the Mises Institute. Uh, as, as was mentioned, I've edited two Murray Rothbard books. I've also got my own book coming out, Cronyism. The Mises Institute is publishing, publishing it. It's coming out in a couple weeks. It'll be at the Supporter Summit. You can pre-order it online right now uh, and on the Mises website. You can find it on my, uh, my Twitter account, Dr. Patrick Newman. And I was just so happy with Michael Bolden's talk because he was mentioning all of these obscure figures and asking, does anyone know who Oliver Ellsworth is? And I say, yeah, he's in my index. I know who Oliver Ellsworth is, right? He's mentioning Joe, John Dickinson. I got that. Talking about the Tenth Amendment. I got that. I got uh, the Kentucky Resolutions and all of that stuff. So if you're interested in early American history, if you're interested in corruption and cronyism and special interest policies, then I highly recommend you buy the book. If you order it online at uh, Mises.org, uh, you'll even get it autographed by me with the pre-order. And if you order two copies, you'll get a free set of Harry's razor blades. So I don't know where Tom is, uh, but uh, anyway, I'm involved in that deal with him now. All right, anyway, so uh, when we think about American history, when we, when we think about a great battle between liberty versus power, right, but between the reformers, libertarian reformers versus cronies, right, we think about sound free market economics versus the court intellectuals. So the intellectuals of the court, the people who are allied with the throne and they justify the policies of the government in return for their little slice of the pie, so to speak. So this is I'm referring to the great alliance of throne and altar. Right. So when I think of a battle between sound free market economics and court intellectuals, uh, as well as those uh, other groups, I think of Austrian economics versus the establishment. So I think of Austrian economics versus politicians, versus bankers and other large corporations, versus academics, uh, versus government universities, and so on. In other words, I think of Austrian economics versus the establishment. Okay. So what exactly is Austrian economics? Is it the economics of Austria? Does it have anything to do with Australia? 
Uh, no, it doesn't have anything to do with uh, the, the economics of Austria or Australia. The original founders, Karl Menger, uh, was from Austria, so the name just uh, always stuck, right? So we think about what Austrian economics is, give a little bit of elevator pitch with this, is that it's a body of economic theorems arrived at through logical deductions from these self-evident axioms. Right? So these if-then statements from an axiom such as the fact that humans act, or there's a variety of natural resources, right? if humans act, then they value means according to ends, and so on. Right? This is different than other economics such as the econometricians or these, uh, the, these regression monkeys that are just sort of constantly running and churning all of this data out, and the theory is just supposed to emerge from the data. So if you run all these complicated studies on the relationship between razor blades and car accidents, of course something will, uh, will appear from the data and you'll be able to publish a paper on this. It's also different uh, than neoclassical economics, which is built on a body of unrealistic assumptions. All right. But of course, enough about methodology. Uh, I know some of us don't want to get put to sleep today. So when you think about Austrian economics and what I'll be talking about in reference to current events and uh, particularly monetary policy, is it talks about the real world allocation of resources. So it talks about the importance of entrepreneurship, right? the importance of economic calculation, so allocating resources off of profit and loss, the importance of the structure of production, so the fact that entrepreneurs embark upon production processes of varying lengths, all right, and that takes time to build things. And we also think about, we also discuss as Austrian economists, the importance of, free, uh, the importance of uh, commodity money. So money that originates on the market, not by an act of the government. Money that has value outside of its use of, uh, of, of exchange. So gold, Bitcoin, et cetera, all of these market monies. All right. So all right, why is Austrian economics usually dismissed? When you talk to a, a mainstream economist or established politician, if they've heard of Austrian economics, they just say, oh, that's just right-wing dogma, or you're just, it's just, it's just, all that stuff's been disproven. Uh, why are you reading all these old economics books from 150 years ago? You don't read all these old economic, you know, old books on biology or doctors. We're on the new stuff, right? Science evolves. Well. Some people have tried to give these very elaborate reasons for why Austrian economics isn't actually accepted in the profession. I have a very simple answer, and in the tradition of Occam's razor, <laughs> my answer is right. I guess I'll put it that way. And it's because Austrian economics is anti-laissez-faire. It's anti-free market. I mean, excuse me, it's pro-free market. It's anti-government, right? It's, it's pro-laissez-faire. It's pro-free market. It's anti-government intervention. Right, so Austrian economics shows the harmful consequences of governments instituting price controls, instituting lockdowns, increasing the money supply, taxing individuals, regulating companies, spending on public works, so on and so forth. Okay, and if you're anti-laissez-faire, you're basically anti-establishment, right? Because the establishment is in favor of cronyism. Right, special interest privilege, you know, uh, policies that privilege co concentrated groups at the expense of the public overall. Right? So with laissez-faire, politicians couldn't increase their power. Right? Large corporations and other connected businesses and labor unions couldn't get their special privileges. And of course, academics couldn't get their cushy jobs at government uh, institutions and uh, government universities and get nice research grants from the government, so on and so forth. 
right? And this is something that's really built into the, the nature of the uh, economics profession. A lot of people don't know this, but the, the American Economics Association was founded in 1885 to be an explicitly anti-laissez-faire organization. That was in the original documents of the AEA. They sort of dropped it later on, but the bias has always stayed there. Because economists realized it, say, wait a second, if we say the government just, you know, the government shouldn't do anything, the market can take care of itself, but we're not really gonna get that much money doing anything, right? What do we need to do? All we have to do is just be teaching. We're not going to get any nice, uh, cushy jobs from the government or come up with big, fancy plans. Or you just say, well, you want to build the roads? We'll just let a private company build the road, right? So when we think about the establishment, right, when we think about the, the whole connection of politicians and, 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 and bankers and large corporations and intellectuals and et cetera, What's the one establishment institution that most combines political, business, and academic cronyism and also hates Austrian economics? The Fed, the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is the one, is the, is the one institution that's really like the evil dark emperor behind all of the other government institutions. The Fed powers everything, right? Because if the government wants to spend money on something, they got to get the money from somewhere. And we all know taxes are unpopular. Right. So the Federal Reserve, uh, I was very happy to hear it in an earlier talk. Someone mentioned uh, the creature from Jekyll Isle, and they talked about, uh, you know, briefly, it was the Fed's a banking cartel, which is exactly correct. Right? When we think about the history of the Federal Reserve, it was founded in 1913. Right? It was designed to be a crony institution to in, ease, make it easier for large Wall Street banks to engage in credit expansion, right? to grant out loans to themselves and other favored businesses. Okay? So the, all the great, the big bankers of the past got involved in creating the Federal Reserve. So you've got JP Morgan, you've got John D. Rockefeller, you have Paul Warburg, you have JP Morgan and Co., you have Chase National Bank, you have National Citibank, you have all these large uh, organizations that got together, they had a great uh, conspiratorial meeting at, at, at Jekyll Isle, right? Uh, about 1910, they drafted a bill, even though the exact same bill didn't, wasn't you know, what became the Federal Reserve, the similarities were there. Right, so the Federal Reserve was established as a crony organization. So it benefits banking interests, and it continues to benefit banking interests. It also increases the power of uh, politicians because it's easier for them to engage in interventions when they can just print money. Right? And it's also, uh, you know, the intellectuals are firmly behind the Federal Reserve. Right? Because if you want to talk about monetary policy, or if you want to do research in money and banking or macroeconomics, you're going to have a really tough time if you're criticizing the biggest employer <laughs> in that field, right? So the Federal Reserve uh, spends lots of money uh, hiring economists, giving out research grants, uh, sponsoring uh, conferences. Uh, some of their people referee for very prestigious academic journals. So if you want to rise in the ranks of being an influential monetary economist, you always have to bow down to the Fed, right? So everyone listens to the Fed. The Fed is, is almighty. Uh, it's involved in this, in this giant sort of crony partnership, right? Only Austrian economists are really anti-Fed. You know, you get the real ideological, yeah, like, yeah, I'm going to go read a book on the Federal Reserve, right? You know, that, that's, that's how we, weird we are. You know, I'm going to go talk about the Fed and tell my friends why the Federal Reserve is such a bad thing. So not, 
you know, let's change the makeup of the Federal Reserve. If we appoint the right people to the Fed, or if we get the Fed to follow a rule and it'll only increase the money supply by a certain amount each year. No, it's like, let's just completely get rid of the Federal Reserve, right? Like, let's get rid of the Federal Reserve, right? As, as someone once said, uh, let's end the Fed, right? <laughs> as, as Ron Paul once said, let's end the Fed. So let's get rid of the Federal Reserve. Let's allow people to use market money, whether it's gold or Bitcoin. Let's allow banks to freely compete, free banking, so on and so forth, right? So, you know, it always reminds me, because when you think about the just being very anti-Fed, reminds me of Andrew Jackson, who actually vetoed the recharter of the Second Bank of the United States, right? He just wanted to get rid of the bank. And it's no surprise that many Jacksonian economists later influenced, their thought influenced Austrian economists. So that connection is still there. So you know, only Austrian economics is really anti-central banking. That's like, it's like one of our, you know, we, we got a little sticker on our refrigerator at the Federal Reserve, you know, at least I do, right? Again, that's just because who we are. We're very anti-central bank, right? So when we think about the establishment, we think about the crony establishment, and we think about the Federal Reserve, right? This brings me to uh, really what I want to focus on for the rest of my talk, which is an emerging controversy in politics and, and economics right now. That's something that hasn't really been an issue for many years, and now all of a sudden it's becoming an issue again. And it's the fact that prices are starting to rise in ways they have not normally risen for a long time. So the controversy is what's causing the rise in prices right now, right? Because we, we, th we think about it, you know, we've noticed over the past couple, couple months that the prices of things such as, as gasoline, uh, as of the grocery store, of rent, of cars, et cetera, has all gone up. Right. From 2000 to 20, uh, 2020, the, the uh, price index, the CPI, right, measures average consumer prices, increased by about 2% a year. Right? Sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a little bit less. Right? But in 2021, uh, up to at least August, prices have already increased by about 4.5%. Right. In year over year, from August 2020 to August 2021, prices have risen by five and a half percent. Okay, so gas has gone up by 14 percent. Beef prices have gone up by about, uh, excuse me, gas has gone up by about 42 percent. Beef prices has gone up by about 14 percent. Used car prices have gone up by about 32 percent. Housing and rent has gone up by about 10 to 20 percent. We've seen what's happening to the price of lumber uh, and so on. Producer prices have gone up by about 8%. It's even gotten so bad, I read an article this week, it's even gotten so bad that the Dollar Tree is being forced to raise prices of most goods from a dollar to a dollar 25, a dollar 50 cents, all right? That's pretty bad, right? Because you can't be known as the dollar 25 cent tree, right? It doesn't sound good. You gotta be the dollar tree, right? So the inflation is, 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 is ruining the dollar tree. It's gonna be, you know, we're gonna go there in a year from now, it's gonna say dollar and 50 cent tree or $2 tree. It's not the same thing. That's how bad it's gotten, the inflation, right? I mean, it's, you know, when you really get at the heart of the Dollar Tree, that's, 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 when, you, that's when you're angering the, the American people, right? <laughs> so prices have gone up. Consumers have been getting hurt by this. 
the establishment said, the Federal Reserve said this, this wouldn't happen. At the beginning of the year, they said, well, prices wouldn't go up. If they did, they'd go up a little bit. The Federal Reserve said prices uh, in March, they made a forecast. Prices are going to go by about 2.2% in 2021. Okay. And the Federal Reserve said because of this, they wouldn't need to raise interest rates until 2023. Okay. So I'm trying to think. Is there anything that happens before 2023? Because they keep saying early 2023, and I'm like, okay, well, I'm trying to think, is there anything that happens in like December of 2022 or November of 2022? I don't know, maybe, I'll have to think about that, right? And again, it's sort of, they're dancing around, they're dancing around this issue, which we'll talk about, because political constraints uh, are really affecting the Federal Reserve right now. All right. So they've really screwed up. You say inflation is going to be 2%, and inflation is already 4%, uh, more than 4%. It's basically 5%. So unless prices actually fall in the remaining months we're going to get data from, September, October, November, December, then uh, it's only going to get worse for them. Right? So they've really made a big mistake. And the big mistake with this is that, of course, with price prices going up unexpectedly, this has really hurt a lot of workers. Right? Because there, if your nominal wage goes up by 5%, but prices go up by 10%, well, then your real wage goes down by 5%. Okay? You're poor. You can buy less goods than you used to be able to. So uh, nominal wages, so the wages on, for contracts of various workers, the lowest uh, skilled workers, the lowest uh, pay, you know, uh, paid workers, it's increased by about 4%. So with the current inflation, uh, their real wage is actually down by about 1%, 1 to 2% in 2021. So people are poorer than what they were in 2020, right? You think this is a recovery, but actually wages are getting, are, are, are getting eroded by all of this inflation, right? And this is a big problem, okay? So uh, this relates to what I'll be talking about a little bit later on when we think of Austrian economics. The Austrians always emphasize that inflation is a hidden tax. Okay, it's a more complicated tax that the government uses because everyone understands the idea with a tax. You look at your paycheck, your paycheck has gone down, right? With inflation, it's more complicated because in order to understand that inflation is a hidden tax, you got to take an economics course, and no one wants to do that, right? Unless it's my course, then everyone wants to take an economics course, right? And you got to learn about how inflation is a hidden tax, okay? So in the face of sort of their massive mistake, the, the Fed has, the establishment has, has really shifted its narrative. Right. So the chairman of the Fed, Jerome Powell, right, who's, who's really uh, very linked to Wall Street, as I'll be talking about, uh, he said, if you've read news on inflation over the past several months, uh, particularly in May and June and July, they said inflation's high. It's rising more than we expected. But what's the word they've been using? Does anyone know the word they've been using? Transitory. It's transitory. It's transitory. It's transitory. 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 This word has exploded in the economics discourse, but no one was ever using the word transitory before. Right? So I say, well, inflation is going to be transitory. And a lot of people are wondering, OK, how long is transitory? Because it doesn't feel so transitory. Uh, so I've, you know, I, I did a lot of in-depth research uh, for this. So the, <clears throat> the Merriam-Webster Dictionary okay, defines transitory as, quote, short-lived, quote, temporary, uh, quote, fleeting. Okay, so transitory means short-lived. It's supposed to, you know, the Federal Reserve said it was supposed to last a couple of months. Prices go up, then they go down. Just a little, it's just a little blip. Okay, 
But the issue is they're now kind of stretching the meaning of transitory, and they even admit this, right? So Jerome Powell said in late September, he said inflation is greater and longer lasting than anticipated. Uh, it's frustrating, that's the word he used, that inflation is going to last now into 2022 and through 2022. Uh, inflation, Powell tells us, will, quote, get a little bit worse, okay? The Wall Street Journal had a great article saying the Fed is admitting that transitory isn't as transitory as it previously said, okay? So we're now shifting maybe, transitory means like medium term, right? So I guess now the Fed tells us that inflation will last, instead of just a couple months, it'll last a year, and then it's two years now, and so then maybe like five years or, you know, 10 years or, I, I, you know, right? The, 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 the meaning is, uh, of, of the, the, the duration is, is, is getting stretched, okay? So this brings me back to the question that I, I posed a couple minutes ago, which is, all right, we know that prices are rising, right? That evidence is, I've, I've, I've presented those statistics, right? So why are prices rising? Why have prices been rising over the past several months? And why are prices continuing to rise, which is what the Federal Reserve will say will happen in the future, right? Why do prices rise? You know, when prices go up at the grocery store or for the various goods we buy, is this due to like capitalist greed or exploitation? It's these evil businessmen, right? Well, the Biden administration appear, you know, th seems to think so, right? So they're now the Biden administration, President Biden and his, his, his army of executive, uh, executive agents, is, they're investigating rising meat and gas prices and they're looking for, quote, profiteering, right? They're gonna make sure that there's an evil businessman afoot earning a profit then clearly the consumer is being hurt, right? Now, Austrian economics tells us that, that that logic is totally backwards, right? It's actually profits are good. That means you're satisfying consumer desires. But then again, uh, you know, if you're talking to the government about this, it's like you're preaching, to, you know, you, 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 you're not really going to get anywhere. So when we think of now the Biden administration is looking into rising prices and they're trying to, you know, prevent businesses from rising prices, we know that price controls are going to come soon or price ceilings where they prevent prices from rising. So this last happened, uh, at least in any significant sense, under Richard Nixon when inflation was a big problem. We had wage and price controls under Richard Nixon. Uh, something that I always like to teach my students is this is basically price controls have been as old as antiquity. They're in Hammurabi's code and the Edict of Diocletian. Uh, since time and time again, politicians and, and, and overlords have been trying to prevent the forces of supply and demand uh, from, from allocating resources. So it's like trying to fight the ocean tide. You're trying to sweep it back. Uh, so that's what all these investigations into quote unquote profiteering are gonna uh, amount to. But so, all right, it's not due to capitalist greed. I've in fact sort of hinted that the answer, it's due to supply and demand. The price of a good can rise and the prices of overall goods can rise only when either A, the supply of goods decreases, so there's less goods before, there's the same amount of money chasing less goods, or if the demand for goods, for goods overall increases, such as when there's um, more people buying uh, goods, right? So there's more demand chasing the same amount of goods, okay? The Fed is in the establishment is, is sort of pinning the blame on the supply side. Right, so if you read about the inflation issues uh, hitting the economy now, they're saying, well, it's transitory and it's due to these supply shocks. 
that are caused by COVID, right? So these supply shocks that are, you know, jolting the production systems. When we think of a shock, it's like, it's like a lightning bolt from Zeus, like, you know, like the supply shock and the prices rise and then, and then they sort of dissipate, you know, because it's, it's due to COVID. So it's due to COVID causing these supply shocks. So already, all right, you put your thinking cap on, right? You say, all right, well, already that statement's incorrect, right? So not even focusing on the supply side, but the, the, the argument that COVID is causing the supply side issues. Coronavirus did not cause the supply side issues. It's the government's response to coronavirus that caused the supply side issue, okay? It's not coronavirus that's causing the supply side issues. It's the government's response to coronavirus that's causing the supply side issues. Right? So when we, uh, the United States and other countries around the world, when we uh, shut down our economies, like hardcore shut down, right? Remember those, you know, the, the, the really, you know, the, the, you know, that was, that was the right, you know, that was the, be the beginning of the new time. So everyone's got like the before time, right? Like February, 2020, like, what would you do at the Super Bowl 2020? Oh, that was the before time. I, I forget that, you know, we're living in like a new world now, right? So shutting down the economy disrupted many elements of the production processes. Right, uh, such as like for computer chips, for 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 cars, or at various stages of the lumber um, production process. Okay, and of course there's been other interventions, right? So aside from the lockdowns in March and April, the continued shutdowns uh, in various parts of the world and in the United States, right? But there's been other interventions, such as the as 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 they're referred the the, the STEMI checks. Right, so the stimulus checks, as, as the, the STEMI checks, so you get about thirty-five hundred dollars in in in, in uh, federal STEMI. Uh, you get the extra unemployment benefits of three hundred, six hundred dollars extra unemployment benefits that had been continuing for a long period of time. Really, kind of an opening shot in universal basic income. Right, uh, you have the rent moratorium. So if people don't have to pay for one of their biggest items of their monthly budget that maybe might kind of affect their incentive to work. <laughs> I know this might sound as shocking, but if you basically take away one, someone's biggest, one of their biggest components of their monthly uh, expenses, they're going to have less of an incentive to work. Right? Incentives do matter. This is something Austrian economics teaches us. This is something the establishment does not teach us. Okay. Um, there's also been many other interventions that have kept workers off the sidelines, right? A new one actually is, economists have been on, uh, recognizing this, is the, uh, the vaccine mandate, right? So there have been workers who have been quitting over the vaccine mandate because they don't feel comfortable getting the vaccine. This is affecting uh, healthcare and other industries, even something like the school closures. If uh, education is closed, you know, that's a source of childcare. People have to stay at home and take care of their kids. All of these policies have been keeping workers off the sideline, which has restricted the supply of workers and has restricted uh, production. And we, we see this now, there's worker shortages, there's worker shortages at the hotel. If you try to go out somewhere to eat, there's a worker shortage. Uh, please wait extra time or you gotta pay more. Uh, we've all been suffering uh, from this, all right? So these supply shocks, as undeniably uh, contributed to rising prices because if the government prevents things from being produced, there's going to be less things produced and there's gonna be the same amount of demand chasing a smaller amount of goods. So it's gonna raise the price of goods. Like, you know, I, I never thought, right? <laughs> and the Fed says, yes, this has been, you know, the, 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 the supply shocks are the cause of inflation, but of course they say it's transitory, which is, 
again turning out to be false because they've really they've really downplayed just how much production would be disrupted by all of these lockdowns and other sorts of interventions. Right. Remember, you know, back in the day with the beginning of the lockdowns, when we said, well, this will only be like two weeks, <laughs> right? It's like, it'll be two weeks, two weeks turned to three weeks, three weeks turned to three, weeks turned to three months, et cetera, right? And we drastically, the establishment drastically downplayed the cost of these policies, right? They downplayed the psychological, the economic, the cultural, the financial costs of all of these lockdowns. And they're still affecting supply chain disruptions. From thing policies you know, undertaken a year ago are still affecting supply chain disruptions. Right? And these, these disruptions will continue to persist as long as the federal government continues to intervene. There's people who are thinking that uh, they're expecting another stimulus check. They're expecting more unemployment benefits. The federal government is prolonging the rent moratoriums. Okay, there's school closures. There might be something that happens again in the winter uh, as it gets colder, and, and so on and so forth. Right. So it goes back to the establishment sort of supreme belief, uh, you know, the belief in the in the ability of the government to just sort of turn the economy off like a light switch. So you go like, turn the economy off in 2021. Turn the economy on. Turn the economy on in 20. Uh, turn the economy off in 2020. Turn the economy on in 2021. Right, just like a light switch. But Austrian economists, Austrian economics, we we know that you can't just do that, right? Because when you interfere with the market, you're going to cause all sorts of distortions. This is why Rothbard says that government intervention causes calculational chaos. It interferes with entrepreneurs' ability to allocate resources based off of profit and loss. It interferes with the free enterprise system ability to produce consumer goods that satisfy uh, uh, the demands of the public. Okay, these lockdowns had all sorts of consequences that Austrians say would happen, and it's turned out that Austrians are right because these are happening. Right? These supply chain disruptions are going to persist. They're not as transitory as the establishment wants us to believe. Okay. And they also say that unemployment benefits had nothing to do with workers staying home because they say, well, we've interviewed various people and they don't say unemployment benefits are causing them to stay at home. They say it's fear of the coronavirus. And I say, well, maybe, just maybe, people are lying. Right? You don't want to say you are not working because the government's giving you free money. Like we, you know, we <laughs> put on your thinking caps, right? Like, come on, no one's going to say, I'm not working because I'm getting free money from the government. You're going to use another explanation so you can continue to get free money. This is, this is how a racket works, right? Okay, so we got the supply side. Right? We know the supply side is causing, is causing issues. But there's the other, there's the other side of, the, of supply and demand that you, you don't really hear about. There's nary a peep you hear about uh, in, in uh, news articles talking about inflation. And this is, of course, the increase in demand for various goods since the economy reopened. Right? We think about uh, when you hear about increases in demand for goods online, uh, you know, on online articles and so on, it's, they're usually referring to what economists describe as the establishment describes as sort of real factors. So they're saying, well, people have the vaccine, so they're feeling more confident in spending, or they've, they have all these pent up savings, right? Because 
you know, these savings, they're, they're, they're hurting the economy. And now when people just empty out their, their, their bank accounts and they just spend all their, you know, their money on Wal at Walmart, you know, the economy is going to recover, right? Uh, Austrians, we, 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 we champion savings. We know savings are good, right? Uh, so they're, they're referring to these, these, these sort of real factors. But you very rarely hear about the, the one big factor on the demand side that's really causing the demand for goods to increase. It's, it's very rarely discussed. If it is, it's just kind of you know, casually mentioned in, in the sentence or half of a sentence in an, in an, in an article. And then you know, the rest of the article is off to the races, so to speak. And of course, what I'm talking about is the massive increase in the money supply since the beginning of the pandemic. Right? The money supply has been drastically increasing. Okay, so from about 2000 to 2019, M2, which is the usually we think of a standard money supply metric, M2 has been increasing by about 6% each year, some years higher, some years lower, right? In 2020, uh, M2 exploded by 25% in one year. Particularly, exactly, right? Particularly in March and April. Right? The money supply exploded. We added one-fourth of all dollars in existence then, right? a 25% increase. Because in order to keep the economy from crumbling, if we're preventing people from working, we're just printing out money to businesses and giving it to businesses and consumers and the government and so on. Right? A tremendous amount of strain, an increase in the money supply. And no one's talking about the increase in the money supply because money doesn't matter anymore, according to contemporary economics. Right? And in 2021, uh, the money supply, M2, has already, uh, uh, so far, increased by about, um, it's, it's, it's going to increase by about 13% this year, right? And it's going to be probably about 15%, which is what people were saying before. The growth rate dipped down a little bit in the summer, but then it started to pick up again. And the last time we had a 15% increase in the money supply uh, outside of 2020 was in the 1970s. Okay, that's how far we have to go back to get a yearly increase in the money supply of that magnitude. And does anyone know what the inflation rate was in the late 1970s? It was very high, okay? So how has the money supply been increasing uh, so much? Well, uh, is it due to the private sector? No, it's due to the Federal Reserve. It's due to the banking cartel that we just mentioned earlier. The Federal Reserve is behind the increase in the money supply. Because what has the Federal Reserve been doing since uh, the uh, coronavirus crisis in March is it's been buying a tremendous amount of securities from businesses and individuals, making loans to businesses and banks and so on. Right? It's been pumping in a massive amount of reserves. Its balance sheet has ballooned from basically $4.2 trillion to $8.5 trillion. Right? So that's an increase of over 100%. That's a massive increase. They've just been buying a tremendous amount of reserves. And they did that in 2008 during the financial crisis. But due to the particular ways they've been buying reserves and trying to prop up the banking system, it's actually led to a massive increase in the money supply this time. Right? So. It's no surprise that the biggest beneficiaries of this entire process, of this entire uh, easy money policy, has been uh, Wall Street. Okay, Wall Street has benefited tremendously under Jerome Powell and under the current leadership of the Federal Reserve. 
Okay, it's a banking cartel. So in 2020, investment banks had massive profits, okay, because uh, the Federal Reserve is buying uh, a lot of their assets, their securities, that's increasing the demand, that's pushing up the price of, the, of, 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 those, of those assets. So banks have done very well under Powell. And why have they done very well under Powell? Well, for a couple reasons. One, as I mentioned, in 1913, the Federal Reserve was created uh, as a banking cartel to benefit Wall Street banks. So like, maybe that is playing some sort of role in this, right? The other thing that doesn't always get spoken about, or at least it doesn't get spoken about now, because the current president is no longer a Republican but is a Democrat, is that Jerome Powell has generally been very close with Wall Street. Uh, before he started working for the Federal Reserve, he was a partner of the Carlyle Group, which was at one point in time the largest private equity firm in, in the United States. It's sort of known as the, quote, lesser known J.P. Morgan. Even one of the Fed presidents, uh, the head of the uh, Dallas Fed, Robert Kaplan, you might have heard this in the news last week, he resigned due to concerns over insider trading and profiteering during the COVID uh, pandemic. He used to work for Goldman Sachs. Okay, so like, you know, a lot of people think sometimes that politicians and bureaucrats, they just, they, 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 they arrive on the public scene, they're like a phoenix, like they just come, they, they just spring out of nowhere, they come out like a comet, so then they, 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 they serve for four years and then they just disappear from public life, like they, you know, they, they, these people have lives, as Murray Rothbard used to say, they did something before and they did something after. And when you look at what they used to do before and also what they did after, you can kind of see how that's going to affect uh, their overall disposition in the regulatory agency or the arm of the government they're serving. Because right? if some guy used to work for a bank before he was uh, involved in the Fed, and then he worked for a bank after he was involved in the Fed, do you think maybe he's, he ran the Fed in ways that would benefit banks? Okay, uh, this, is, this, is, this is very simple. It's called the revolving door, <laughs> right? So huge profits for Wall Street, right? It's increased the income of Wall Street. All of this money printing has increased the income of Wall Street. The real income of Wall Street banks and other businesses connected to the government have gone up. Right? But the public has been hurt because prices have gone up for the public. Right? So this is why inflation is a hidden tax, according to Austrian economists, because it redistributes income from the people who receive the money last to the people who receive the money first. Right, Because Wall Street is going to get all this money, and they're going to spend it, but the prices of goods don't really rise. Right, So their real income goes up. And then the person after uh, Wall Street gets the money, they're going to spend uh, the new money, and prices will maybe rise a little bit. Right? So as the money gets spent throughout the economy, it sort of travels from hand to hand like a hot potato, prices slowly start to go up. And then you're stuck with the people at the end of the gravy train, so to speak. They've been paying higher prices for goods, but their salaries haven't gone up, or their salaries haven't increased as much as the increase in, the, in prices. And so their real income has gone down. Okay? They're poorer. So the inflation, redistributes income from the general public, benefits Wall Street and other investment banks. Austrians call this Cantillon effects, okay? All right. These are the relative price in production uh, changes caused by changes in the money supply, okay? So increase in the money supply has led to a tremendous increase in spending. People have more money, they're gonna spend more. Nominal GDP in the second quarter of 2021, which is a rough measure of nominal spending, doesn't include everything, but it's good enough. Year over year, it's increased at about a 16% rate. It's a massive increase. 
So some of this is due to the fact that spending declined in 2020, but these trends certainly don't look good. They're already increasing the prices of goods on the demand side. And if these spending changes continue to increase at even levels of half the amount, it's going to continue to push up prices from the demand side. All right, so prices are clearly being uh, driven upwards by the Federal Reserve's money printing. It's not just these supply shocks, right? The establishment wants you to think it's the supply shocks because the establishment doesn't want to admit that they're the reason behind the rise in prices. The Federal Reserve is not going to blame the Federal Reserve. They're not going to say, yeah, remember that time we increased the money supply by like 25%? Yes, sorry, I think that's, that's the reason for the increase in the money supply, right? They're not gonna say that the supply chain disruptions are caused by the government lockdowns. They're not gonna say that the demand side uh, increases, uh, pushing up spending and prices is, is caused by the Federal Reserve, okay? So there's another sort of nefarious uh, element involved in all of the Federal Reserve's money printing. And this is something Austrians like to continually uh, you know, mention and recognize, right? And this is the fact that the money printing is also causing an unsustainable boom, all right? It's causing a bubble, something like we saw in the, uh, during the housing crisis. Right? Because normally, as Austrians emphasize, is that savings influences interest rates in the structure of production. So if the public saves more, the supply of loanable funds is going to increase. This lowers interest rates. And this encourages businesses to embark upon investment projects. Because with a lower interest rate, the present value of various long-term investment projects will increase. And businesses are going to borrow money to expand on factories, uh, to buy real estate, to build new uh, automation technologies, to build more electric cars, driverless cars, so on and so forth. Right? But if the Federal Reserve increases credit expansion, if they just simply uh, increase the money supply, banks have more money, they're going to lend out this money, etc. The supply of loanable funds increases and the interest rates fall, but it's not due to savings. It's just due to the Federal Reserve just literally printing money. Right? They print money out of thin air, and this leads to a very large increase in the money supply, and this lowers interest rates. This is why the Federal Reserve has said that, well, uh, you know, in, 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 they keep talking about very low interest rates. The Feds cause these low interest rates. Right? So when the Federal Reserve engages in credit expansion and when it lowers interest rates, entrepreneurs are misled. They think that the profitability of various projects has increased. Right? In reality, they haven't. So businesses start to buy real estate. Uh, they start to, again, expand on these various long-term investment projects. Consumers buy real estate. We see a housing boom going on right now, so on and so forth. Okay, but the issue though is that these new projects can only be maintained if the Federal Reserve continues to increase the money supply. But the issue is that if they continue to increase the money supply, prices are going to continue to go up. So they're stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? They can either keep increasing the money supply and they face higher and higher inflation, eventually uh, resulting in what Mises would call a crack up in the currency or hyperinflation, right? or they are going to have to engage in contractionary monetary policy, slow down the growth rate and the money supply, which is going to raise interest rates. But once they raise interest rates, these long-term investment projects are no longer going to be profitable. Right? So then you get a bubble. The bubble bursts, you go from boom to bust. Okay? This is what's known as Austrian business cycle theory. 
This is also why most of the establishment uh, doesn't <laughs> like Austrian economics because their main, our, our main uh, explanation of business cycles uh, is that, well, the government caused it. Okay, so we saw this last during the financial crisis, right? This current recession uh, was due to the lockdowns, but we're certainly seeing a bubble brewing right now. Okay, so when we think about this, uh, when, when people argue, they say, well, the, even if inflation is caused by the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve could still engage in contractionary monetary policy right now. If you read the news, though, the Fed is talking about engaging in contractionary monetary policy or having a meeting right now to talk about another meeting they're going to have in the future, and they might engage in some contraction then, and they're going to form another meeting and then have a committee, and then somewhere later on they'll again maybe contract a little bit. If you read the news, it's, it's sort of the way it's being phrased. But they could say, well, you know, the Federal Reserve, they can just engage in contractionary monetary policy in 2022, and everything will be fine. Right? Well, there's a couple of really big political constraints that are really going to prevent the Federal Reserve from doing this. And it's no coincidence that these similar constraints also affected the Federal Reserve in the 1970s. Because in the 1970s, uh, Richard Nixon basically pressured then-Fed uh, Chairman Arthur Burns to engage, continue to engage in expansionary monetary policy so Nixon's re-election chances in 1972 would improve. We, we literally have proof of this because Nixon was, he was that guy where, of course, he's got to record everything in the White House. And, of course, most people are worried about all the other election stuff. But as economists, we, we, hear, all, we hear about all the stuff about monetary policy. Uh, Nixon's talking to Arthur Burns, and he's, uh, he's saying you've got to keep on inflating. The, the election is, is right around the corner, et cetera. Right? Well, we face, the Federal Reserve faces somewhat similar constraints now. Because in 2022, there are midterm elections. So the Democrats want a good economy. They want uh, a booming economy, right? Because it's going to increase their chances of winning the midterms, strengthen their control of Congress, which will then allow Biden in the, uh, uh, in, in, in the House of Representatives and the Senate to pass various legislation, right? Well, Jerome Powell's reappointment uh, is in 2022. Right? So he's also got a four-year term. He was appointed by Trump in 2018. He wants to get reappointed. So he's got to make President Biden happy, and he's also got to make the Democrats in the Senate happy. Right? And Republicans, the Republican establishment, will also vote for Powell, too, because uh, Fed officials, again, they're, they're above both parties, beckon to the Fed, so to speak. Right? And then we can't also forget the fact that Biden's current Secretary of the Treasury is Janet Yellen who used to be the head of the Federal Reserve. Okay, so the last time this happened <laughs> uh, was most people probably have never heard of this name, this guy named G. William Miller. He was Fed chairman and also Secretary of the Treasury. And guess when he served? He also served in the 1970s, okay, in the late 1970s. So you, you now have the Treasury and the Federal Reserve kind of linked. Now, Janet Yellen, it's not like she's just forgotten all of her contacts over at the Fed, right? She clearly knows how to move policy. She's very smart. She can influence the Federal Reserve from the, from, from, from the Treasury. Of course, the Fed will deny this, but they, uh, will, they do recognize that pressure, okay? So the Federal Reserve will face tremendous political pressure to continue to engage in monetary uh, 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 expansion, right? They might gradually taper a little bit, but it's not going to be a lot, 
right? They're going to continue to engage in monetary expansion. This is going to continue to contribute to higher prices. And eventually, the establishment will have to admit that they're the reason causing the rise in prices. Okay. So uh, I'd like to end with, I guess, a paraphrase of a quote. One of my favorite uh, authors, H.L. Mencken, always had a great quote. He said, the great pietist fear is that somewhere someone is having fun. Okay, so when I gave a talk on uh, progressives then and now, I said the, the great progressive fear is that someone, uh, some, someone somewhere is not wearing a face mask, right? <laughs> and now we could say the great Federal Reserve fear is that somewhere, someone understands the true cause of inflation, right? So I think I'll end there. Uh, I'll have some time to take some questions. I'd like to also to give a little shout out again. You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Patrick Newman. Uh, you can buy my book, Cronyism. It goes through a lot of this history. Again, if you're interested in this type of stuff. Uh, so I think we've got some about 10 minutes or so for questions. So I'd like to, I know, I, don't, I guess with the, the mic, we'll see. Okay, we got one up here. So. Uh, very good lecture. I really enjoyed it. Um, Thank you. So I understand what you're saying about the political incentives that act on the Fed for them to always, uh, you know, accommodate and accommodate and accommodate. And so if that's the case, how did we get Reagan and Volcker then after Nixon? Well, so Volcker was appointed by Carter, right? And so Volcker's policies, in a sense, indirectly already led to Carter's downfall somewhat. And so Volcker did contract, right? And Volcker contracted in the early 80s, and that's why Reagan threw him out. Right? So they threw him out and replaced him with Greenspan uh, later on. Was that the question you were, you were getting at? Yeah. 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 So it, it's always been political. The Federal Reserve has always been a political agency. And there's actually a, a sort of a, a game that goes on where the Fed gets to say it's independent, but politicians always get to use it as a punching bag. And it's always sort of threatened by Congress. So Congress, and we've already started to see this, Senator Elizabeth Warren, right? Uh, not exactly the, the model libertarian, uh, has said she's going to fight Powell's reappointment, probably because the, the connection with either is not inflating enough or, you know, again, we now hear AOC is saying the Federal Reserve needs to focus on climate change. I, I'm not even sure how that's possible, but uh, people continue to surprise me. Uh, but yeah, so the, the, the political constraints really do face the Federal Reserve. Um, yeah. yeah how hard was it to translate Rothbard's writing? Oh, very, uh, it was hard. Yeah, it was like learning a different language, Rothbardanese, uh, basically. So I'm fluent. I've got, you know, I got a Rosetta Stone of Rothbard. So, <laughs> yeah, I think we got another yeah, question. Yeah, that was also my question. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I've seen copies of Rothbard's writing. Yeah. I, I think everyone in here should probably look it up if you haven't seen it. Can you give us, like, the Rosetta Stone, the piece where you started? Where did you start? How did you do that? Yeah. Like, yeah. Just a little bit of overview, not a yeah, full yeah. history. Like, what was your eureka moment? Yeah, the, well, the eureka moment was when he, so he handwrote, his, the, the handwrote the Conceiving Liberty, Volume 5, and he would sometimes quote things. So he would quote a lot from the Constitutional Convention, right? It, basically, Max Farron's notes on the Constitutional Convention. So you're able to look up a couple of the words, and if you go on Google and you quote, you, you can find the whole Constitutional Convention online. And so you could see some of the words, and that would, more importantly, not only show you what maybe the rest of the quote looked like, but you actually see how he wrote the words. So you're like, oh, so that's a G. <laughs> that's how he writes his Gs, 
right? So you, you, form, you form the alphabet that way. So it's him basically footnoting. You look up books and the books he uses and, and, you know, online and looking, and you could basically compile Rosetta Stone. It took a lot of time. I mean, I could read it very well now, but uh, most, most other people cannot. Yeah, his, his wife couldn't. That's why the project remained there. Yeah, she couldn't read it. So it was up to me, I guess, right? Yeah. Um, is there another? Yeah. So I'm the Jekyll Island guy. <laughs> um, Great. Throughout the, the history of money, we got commodity money, receipt money, yeah. fractional reserve money. Once you kind of get the full-blown fiat money, like you kind of start the end. How do you kind of see the Fed dissolving? I mean, like at some yeah. point, this ride's got to come to an end. And yeah. what's it going to be? Well, I think at least it seems the most likely, at least in the short term right now, is, is, is Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, if people are using those, which is precisely the reason why the Federal Reserve is, they're supposed to publish a paper on cryptocurrency along with the rest of the federal government. It was supposed to come out in the summer. I think it's now supposed to come out in the fall, which basically means it's gonna come out in the winter. And, because they view it as a threat. And of course, the government is gonna say things like Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, well, they're, they're contributing to the drug trade or they're used by terrorists and like the actual reason is that well if people are using cryptocurrency to buy things online uh, that's decreasing the demand for dollars which is going to contribute to higher prices ruin the dollars uh, status as a world reserve currency and it's also going to lead to less tax revenue right so I think people trying to adopt various types of alternative payment technologies uh, is, the, is you're gonna kind of have to work around the Fed or sort of like just not use dollars for a bit at least try to, because the Federal Reserve ain't going anywhere, unfortunately. Yeah, tech, technically I would. I know there's, well, there's been people who've done research on this, so for something to be, you know, go to the Austrian, the commodity money, it's got to have a use value separate from the exchange value. So something like gold is shiny. You can use it for jewelry, right? You can use it for, for you know, for putting things in your teeth. That's what we've done for uh, thousands of years. Bitcoin, initially, some people have done work that actually was sort of like a little hunting trophy. You would have it as like on, on your online account. It was sort of, oh, you could able to encry you know, decode, you know, however you get the Bitcoin. And that it was, it was like a little trophy. So it still has that use value, or at least it did. And that led, contributed to its initial adoption. So some people would argue, you know, you could still fit it in into that framework, which, uh, you know, at least especially initially on the early Bitcoin, it, when it didn't have any sort of uses of money, it was kind of like just how skilled are you as a computer programmer. Yeah, and it's decentralized. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we got some time for some more questions. Oh, right there. Um, this is kind of like a history question. I've been reading a book on like the Whig Party and some of the stuff that happened after Jackson. Yeah. Um, so obviously he got rid of that bank, and then there was kind of like a period of decentralized banking following that. Yeah. Um, they had like state banks and stuff like that. Is yeah. that something that would be better to go back to, or do you feel like that we should? Uh, just get rid of all the central banking and just go back to like local banking? Well, so I, I do talk about that in my book. So I, I, do, I do talk about the period after. I mean, I think that, so initially banks, a lot of people don't know this, just banks like other corporations were literally creatures of the government. In order to run a bank or to run a corporation back in the day, you had to basically get a charter from the government, which means that you had to get a license from the government. This is why people in America, there's an, a very anti-corporation history in America. Not necessarily because, oh, they hate big or they hate profit-seeking or whatever. 
No, they just hate acts of the government. That's why we hate it, like the British East India Tea Company. The period of state banking, uh, often called free banking from the period after the um, end of the Second Bank of the United States to the Civil War, wasn't technically free banking. There was a lot of interventions, but it still was by far our best monetary system. So one of the great reforms that the Jacksonians did is they had this program called the Independent Treasury, which means the government was going to keep all of the gold and silver it owned in its own vaults, and it would not accept any bank paper for payment. So just only deal in gold and silver. So totally divorce itself from the banking system. And so yeah, I, 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 would, I would certainly like something like that where we're not the, the government isn't subsidizing large banks. And I think definitely returning to a system, I would be happy. I'd still want to go further, but I would absolutely take the system in the, um, the antebellum era uh, any day of the week. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, the last one. OK, yeah. Hello. Um, what uh, book on economics would you recommend everyone read besides Human Action or Man, Economy, and State? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I got this book. <laughs> I, I, I would recommend everyone read that book. Uh, it's more on history, but you're still getting the economics in there. Uh, of course, I would say uh, Economics in One Lesson. Uh, there's a uh, colleague of mine, uh, Per Bieland, at the Mises Institute. He's coming out with a new sort of economics for beginners, like a short book on Austrian economics. I highly recommend, uh, I highly recommend that book. Right? So I'd say economics in one lesson. Uh, I would say uh, you've got the new book on Austrian, uh, you know, on the, by, by Per Bieland on Austrian economics coming out. There's a lot of uh, resources, Mises.org. Uh, Tom Woods has some, where is Tom? I, I saw him. Tom Woods is there. He's got, you know, I early on read Meltdown. It's got a lot of great stuff on Austrian economics. I love that book. Uh, so there's tons of resources. I could talk uh, with you more about books. I think I've we've got to wrap up right, right about now. So I. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I really appreciate it.